You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Yeah, one of my favorite moments uh, as a school staff was we, our SBS goes through it chronologically. Not every SBS does that. Some SBSs start with the New Testament and then they kind of, they go by topic. Uh, but our SBS was a chronological one. So you kind of spend the first four to five months in the Old Testament and then the last bit is the New Testament. And so there's this long you know, you guys, uh, I think, have some sense of that, that feeling of just a lot of Old Testament, a lot of rules and laws and all those things, the prophets. Uh, and so they're doing their first reads of Matthew and they got to go at the beginning of the week. They read through the whole book like two or three times. And that's the first part of the homework. And so I was up. I can't even remember what I was doing. And one of our students came up and she was very detail oriented and she's like, kind of tearing up and she's she's crying because she's frustrated that they couldn't get it and she's like got her bible and she's like hitting her head with it she's like why don't they understand why did they miss it and uh apparently she had some uh, i guess uh, some jewish heritage and so it was like a very personal thing for her and i loved it i love that she was able to uh just feel that in a new way and see that in a new way and i think really that's what the the story of Scripture does when you can see it from beginning to end. You can see that meta narrative. Uh, it hopefully comes to life a little bit more. I think we spend a lot of times studying it, a lot of time looking at the details and the dates, and trying to figure out all these things that it can lose. I think you can lose the story, and uh, I feel like a lot of times, at least for me, growing up in church, hearing a verse talked about in a sermon or in a Sunday school class, uh, I think for a lot of my life, I missed the story. I missed what God was trying to communicate through the story of the Bible. And it's why uh, I love seeing people be able to go through it like you guys are going through it. So uh, I'm excited for that. I'm excited that you guys are already in the New Testament. That's really fun. And uh, yeah, we are going to finish our last two days talking about these prophetic books and then talking a little bit about some more about the world you are reading about now as you're in Matthew. Um, and so 
If you so, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are going to make up our last three prophetic books. But I want to make sure we have the idea of Old Testament prophecy framed in correctly. And correctly is probably too strong of a word because we're just getting started and prophetic literature is a tough topic. And so I'm just going to give some very general, very basic guidelines to start and see if there are things that you guys have already talked about or maybe they're new things, but I think they're important to review before we get into the books. Okay, So uh, the prophets, the prophets are going to be the... You know, especially in the Old Testament, this this mouthpiece or this voice for God, right? So different than the priest or the king, the prophet is going to be um, given these specific tasks tasks within the mo- within a moment of time, and their ministry is going to be uh, very specific to what God is asking them to do. So sometimes you have prophets that have long ministries in the Old Testament. And sometimes you have prophets that have very short ministries and they're sent to give a prophecy and they do that and then they go back to whatever they were doing before. Okay, uh, You know, the difference between the king, the prophet and the priest, I think, is very distinct in the Old Testament. And they were supposed to work together. Right? If you go back to Samuel and you read some of that history of, of Samuel talking about the monarchy getting started, you have the priests that are you know, the ones that are working with the temple and they're working with the sacrifices and they have the law, so they're they're teachers of the law. They're supposed to act in one role. You have the king that is supposed to ultimately submit to God, but is also supposed to be listening to these other voices to help be the political representative. And then you have the prophets and the voice of the prophets are going to go in and out of time throughout the monarchy Uh, to be reminding them mostly of who God is and what their responsibilities are, okay? Does anybody know what the four major prophets are in the Old Testament? Pop quiz. Isaiah, Yeah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, okay? And a lot of times, Jeremiah and Lamentations are kind of linked together. Did you guys learn about that when you did Jeremiah? Lamentations is kind of this aside at the end, this uh, poetic, literally a lament about what Jeremiah is seeing. And then from there you have what they call the 12 minor prophets. Can anybody name the 12 minor prophets? That would be impressive. Uh, yeah, Micah. Haggai. Zephaniah. Zechariah. Obadiah, I heard. What? Amos, Malachi, Joel, Nahum, Jonah, two more. We had Joel. Yep. We got, out of all that, we have Hosea, and then... Did we, I think maybe Zephaniah and Zechariah? Yeah. Zachariah? Okay. I think we got all of them then. Yeah, we had Obadiah over here. I think that was all 12. Somewhere somewhere in there, I think we got 12. 
close names, but probably different, different time periods, different messages. All right, so the 12 minor prophets in the Hebrew Bible make up a section of literature by, by itself. And so sometimes in art, as we talk about it in English, when we say major and minor, it can sound like it's more important and less important. And <clears throat> just a quick reminder, that's not the case. It just really has to do with the length of time or the amount of material, you know, the amount of words on a page. And so you have the minor prophets that are smaller writings and then the major prophets have more, more to say. And I already talked about this, but again, just a quick reminder that you have the king, the priest, and the prophet, and these three um, positions were supposed to work in unison, okay? So the king was never supposed to be able to just do whatever he wanted to do. He had the temple, and you had the priestly order, and they were there to help continue to teach the law, and he was supposed to learn the law, right? He was supposed to remember the law and embody the law, and that was supposed to help keep him on track and help him understand what it meant to be the king of this people. And then when those things got, maybe got off and people started forgetting, God would raise up these prophets that are kind of outside of these two systems and he would remind the people through the prophetic voice of who he is and specifically what his covenants were. Okay, so if you can think about the role of the prophet, more times than not, they are going to be trying to communicate the covenants that God has already given them, okay? All right, so the, the role of the prophet in the Old Testament many times is going to be looking more specifically at the people of Israel as a, as a group, as a collective, okay? So there's not often today when we as the church are going to speak judgment or especially judgment over the whole church, right? You have, uh, you know, when we talk about sin today or when we talk about issues um, within the church, those are usually more personal things. But remember in the Old Testament, you have this, uh, this interesting time period where the people of Israel are going to be both a political entity and a religious entity. So they are the same thing. The king is also part of the, the covenant people of God, and he is going supposed to be working within that structure. And so when the prophet comes, he is going to be communicating to the leaders of that community a lot of times, and then to the community as a whole, okay? So these blessings and curses and things that are going to be talked about in the Old Testament are going to look different than how we view um, our relationship with God today, okay? The things that I am working on in my, my life within my faith, you know, the things that are going on in my church are distinct and different than or what are going on, you know, here in YWAM and the things that you guys are going through, both personally and even corporately as a base or as a school, okay? There's not uh, some big prophetic voice that is, uh, you know, 
saying that there's this injustice happening throughout all of Christianity, something, something. And I think there probably are some uh, traditions or denominations that would claim that, but I just don't see that uh, in the same way. Because mostly the what, what we're going to learn about in the New Testament with Jesus and then the, the beginning of the church, the language of how the people of God is going to fu- how the people of God function is going to look very different. So you have uh, these similarities and there's these, these reasons to look back and see connections. But as far as their political structure and how they uh, function as a people group is going to look very different after they're exiled. Okay. Does that make sense to everybody? All right, so let's look really quick at the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy 13. And I want to just highlight a couple places where it talks about prophecy in the Old Testament. Because uh, if you notice throughout the Old Testament, there are sometimes prophets that are not of Yahweh, right? That are speaking are trying to give um, either divination, people are going to them and asking for help, or you have these false prophets. Again, I'll use Jeremiah as an example. You have all these times where Jeremiah is going to be prophesying, and then you have a false prophet coming and saying, oh no, you should do this instead of this, right? Like for a while he's saying, Jeremiah's prophesying, you need to repent, Exiles coming and these other prophets are saying, no, we are the people of God. God would never take Israel from us. God would never destroy the temple. This is not who he is. And so you're going to have these competing voices. So even then, they had this question of, well, how do we know who the real prophets are? How are we supposed to tell? And Deuteronomy is going to help clarify some of those things. So let's look at Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Okay? So even if this prophet, right, even if somebody comes and they seem to be able to supernaturally perceive things, if that prophet is leading them away from covenant relationship with God, they are supposed to ignore that person, right? Ignore that influence. Let's look at Deuteronomy 18 now. And we're going to jump to verse 15. So Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 through 22. The Lord, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you have desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire any more lest I die. The Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. 
Uh, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know what the word of the Lord, sorry, how, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come true or does not come to pass or, or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Okay, so here we see evidence of one way to tell if the prophets are legit from God, it, the stuff that they're saying is going to come to pass. Okay, and you're going to see this a lot in some of these, especially in these larger prophets and these bigger works. There are going to be these times where they're going to give a prophecy, and then right as soon as they give it, it's going to talk about the story where it's fulfilled. And I think the reason they're doing this is they're trying to build their case saying, I am really coming from God. I really am speaking on his behalf. Watch, I'm going to, I'm saying something and then it's going to happen and they're going to do it over and over again. And the reason they need to do that is because there's going to be a couple things that they're going to be speaking about that are going to happen over a longer period of time. And they need to have the trust of the people that they actually are speaking on behalf of God. But there's still this tension that maybe they spoke wrong. So there's going to kind of be this waiting of, is this going to happen? What is this going to look like for these instances when they're speaking about these, uh, these, prophet, the, these, pro, these prophecies? Sorry, these prophecies that are, uh, that are going to be you know, bigger and, and larger as far as a time concept goes. And let's go to Jeremiah. <clears throat> and I just want to show you uh, an example of the prophet being called. Not all prophets have a beginning where they are going to specifically talk about how they are called from God. But some of them do, especially these, uh, these major written prophets. They're going to have specific uh, introductions that help us see um, kind of that God is going to be picking them specifically for this job. All right, so Jeremiah 1, 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Okay, And there's going to be these, these times Ezekiel is going to be uh, touched by a coal. Or I think Ezekiel or Isaiah maybe. Isaiah. Uh, so there's going to be these different moments where you see the special anointing happening with them and they're able to uh, kind of take on this role of the prophet. And from that, it, the idea is that they are kind of the literally like kind of like a speaker or a mouthpiece. So they are going to be um, communicating God's word to the people. Okay, so what is it? I guess before that, uh, in contrast or in different, uh, kind of a different note, what is the difference between an Old Testament prophet and a New Testament prophet? Okay. One of the things, like I said, I think that is probably the main difference in my mind 
is that the political situation is different. How the, is that, can you see that? That's not a very good, um, the, yeah, so the political situation is different and as the church begins to uh, grow, right, you'll see that in Acts, <clears throat> you have the, the apostles that are going to go out and they're going to be uh, creating disciples. And so rather than this, you know, when the, when the people of God originally are formed, you have this kind of national covenant that is created almost like a declaration of independence in the law, and they are made a nation. Okay, now when Jesus comes, and after that, as people are coming to follow Jesus, you have these groups of people, many of them that are Jewish, but you have groups of people that are both Jewish and Gentile that are deciding, oh, I would like to follow Jesus. Okay, and so you don't have that same national political structure in the same way like you did when you had the, um, the initial push in the Old Testament. So because of this uh, different time period, the role of prophecy is, I think, going to change some, okay? And you don't hear of prophets in the same way in the New Testament as in the Old Testament. We don't have prophetic books in the New Testament. You have the writings of the apostles and the gospels. So even that is, is distinct, okay? Um, so yeah, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse All right, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of the church. Okay, so here is just, obviously, probably good to read that whole chapter to understand better that context, but I just wanted to point out that there is going to be mention of a role within the church that there is still a role of a, a prophet, okay, or a prophetic voice. But it's going to be with some of these other roles that also look different than maybe the Old Testament setup looked like. Okay. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 14 now. All right. So I'll start at the beginning of chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God. For one who understands him, but he utters, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouraging, or their upbuilding and their encouragement and consolation. Then it's going to keep going. So here in, in this letter, you have a little bit more about what, what does it mean to prophesy in this context of a spiritual gift. So 
it doesn't seem like in the New Testament as much as there is this call for somebody to specifically um, speak kind of to the whole community on behalf of God. It seems like there is now these these moments where you have, uh, as you have these communities growing, you have these different roles. One of them could be a prophetic role, or you have this spiritual gift that could be speaking prophecy, which again sounds like more like encouragement and possibly uh, some correction. Either way, both Old and New Testament, the main job of the prophet, I think, has to do with encouragement and reminding people of their relationship to God. So in the Old Testament, you specifically have the covenants, and they're going to spend a lot of time talking about the covenants. But in the New Testament, that doesn't really change. We still need encouragement about what it means to be in relationship with God. So we don't have to feel um, nervous about that idea of prophecy in the New Testament because a prophet that is acting correctly should be still just pushing us to to move towards God, to look, uh, you know, to look more for Him. And I think we can use, still use that same principle in the Old Testament of if they prophesy stuff and it doesn't come true, then we don't need to worry about it, okay? Uh, I like uh, that in YWAM we get a lot of people talking about um, interacting with God and how He speaks to us personally. That was something for me that was very new. I came from a liturgical church that... Uh, I didn't really consider that, how God would speak to me personally. Um, I wasn't used to, you know, in a church service, somebody giving me a word from God or, uh, you know, I've, I've gone to different, either different bases or different ministries where they specifically have these prayer ministries where they're going to kind of, it's gonna, like they, they'll, they'll even call it like a prophetic ministry and they're going to tell you these different encouragements and I, uh, I don't have the bandwidth or the uh, educational background to debate whether or not they're doing it right, but I feel like a good way to just hold that is, you know, just very simply, you know, I think it's fine to receive it, fine to participate in it, but it can't, it shouldn't be something that is, is different than what you've already been hearing about your relationship with God. And it shouldn't be something, I don't think it should be something that's distracting from that. And so if you have somebody, you know, telling you in, I don't know, three weeks you're going to get this new job or you're going to get sent to a new part of the world, great, you know, I'll wait. And if in three weeks it happens, I'd be like, wow, that was pretty awesome. God, thank you so much for sharing with this, you know, sharing with me and I can give testimony to that and give praise to him. But if it doesn't happen, then I'm like, well, maybe they got it wrong, you know, or I'm not sure. So I I try to hold those things lightly, but I also, um, in recent years, my dad has gotten a lot more into, um, I think he's been given the gift of faith to pray for people, especially with healing. And that's another thing that I just don't understand. And so 
my mind wants to fight against it. And I want to say, I don't, is that really what you want to be doing? Like going around just praying for people. Like he moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, and he's like walking down our, and around our neighborhood, just like praying for people on the street. I'm like, Ooh, like, do I, do I really want you doing that? It's like, but at the end of the day, I, I feel like I have to, I'm impressed with his faith. I'm impressed that he's willing to put himself out there uh, because his hope is that people come to Jesus and his hope is that um, people are healed. And so far be it for me to get in the way of that. And I want to be challenged towards those things. And so things like prophecy, things like healing in the New Testament, I think are things that we need to think about and consider. But I I don't want us of the people that are studying the Bible to somehow have this negative um, view of it. And kind of, I think a lot of times when we're studying a lot, we can start to be like, ah, you shouldn't do it like that. Or this is wrong. Or, you know, that's not biblical. And I'd say, I think it's good to ask good questions if you're into it. If that's something that you're either really concerned about or really interested in, say spend some more time reading and studying. But ultimately, uh, I think, again, if these things are there to help edify the body, if they're there to help encourage us towards Jesus, then I think they are good things, and we don't have to be um, nervous about them. Okay. So, any questions about Old Testament or New Testament prophets? Yes. Sorry, I was like, because he doesn't know anything else. Yeah, I'm not really sure about. What is your opinion, like, on the New Testament prophecy? There's a lot of times. Yeah, people will be like, oh, I just got it wrong. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, when you say something in that type of environment, especially in wildlife, people take it as a word of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I found that a lot of times people hear things from the Lord or give them words from other people from the Lord that are not true. And so instead of them, it, it, it's seeming to be causing more damage than good. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what do you do with that? Because, I mean, prophecy is in Scripture, even in the New Testament. And so it's like, I don't, I don't really know what to do with that because it's something that there's such an emphasis on it nowadays. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing a lot of negative effects. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that's where those of us who have spent time reading the Bible, we can remind people of the very serious nature of prophecy or prophets and, you know, the Old Testament that could be a, a life-threatening mistake if you messed up. So I'd say if that's how it was taken in the Old Testament and that's something that you feel gifted towards, I'd say there is a need for reverence there. And probably a lot of times you just have a lot of eager people that w- would like to do that. And so I think when you have the opportunity, you're, I think you can help give people counsel on just patience and uh, discernment about when to speak and you know just because I hear something or feel something doesn't mean you know if I've never met you like I don't have to go tell you this second you know you can you can wait and and see how those things work Uh, so yeah I, I do think there's a balance but again I think it's you know because we see that it's easy to overcorrect and say oh we just need to get rid of it or we just need like clearly this is wrong I said meh you know, there are, there's multiple instances in the New Testament where there is a spiritual gift of prophecy, 
there are even a couple times I was going to look them up, but I haven't found them yet. But I know that there still seems to be like a prophet. They're going to refer to a prophet. And you're like, oh, okay, there's still there's still a prophet running around doing something. And so there there seems to still be there's this there's still a place for that even in the New Testament. But yeah, I would say just hold it with caution. But for those of us, uh, I put myself with you that maybe feel a little bit uh, nervous about it or whatever is like you can you can step cautiously but continue to step in faith uh, and so I, that would be my and for those who are just eagerly wanting to tell the world the future um, I think the the reminder is that most of prophecy and we're going to talk about that here in a minute most of prophecy is reminding people of stuff that has already been said it's not new material so if you have somebody going out and they're just constantly bringing new material, that's not prophecy most of the time. Most of the time, prophecy is much more like preaching or teaching. It's, hey, do you remember God said this about his relationship with us? We should live into that. And it it should feel more like that than, oh, you're going to get married next year to this person or get a new job or go to the new YWAM base or whatever the thing is. Any other thoughts or questions on that? Okay. So in the Old Testament, again, you have, even within the distinction of prophecy, you have written prophets and you have um, spoken prophets. Okay. And the written prophets are obviously the ones that we got in the Bible, but you also have mention of these spoken prophets, okay? The written prophets are going to be compiled or their information is approximately between 760 and 460 BC. So in that time that you have just studied in the last couple years or in the last couple weeks, <clears throat> excuse me. And a lot of this prophecy is going to be very specific around the end of the monarchy and into exile and then returning from exile. So it seems like in this moment when there's going to be a lot changing for the people of Israel, God seemed, uh, it seems necessary from God's view to make sure they know what's going on kind of behind the scenes. And that's to me, it feels like that's why they have these prophetic voices written down is that they need this record of not only the history of what happened, but what God is going to be speaking to them through this history. And so that is especially within this, you know, 300-year period. Over and over again, God is going to communicate reminders of His covenant and His promises and also those consequences when those promises are broken on their end. However, you also have a lot of uh, instances of these spoken prophets, okay? And you'll see that a lot in Kings. When I came here two years ago and taught Kings, I was uh, pleasantly surprised to realize, oh, there are so many prophets throughout the book of Kings. I had no idea. And uh, I want to look at one of those prophets just quickly to show you how this idea of prophecy worked then. If you go to First uh, Kings 14... Mm-hmm. 
All right, so here we go. 1 Kings 14, 1 through 10. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall say, Thus and thus shall you say to her, When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came to the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel, and tore the kingdom away from the house of David, and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments, and followed me with all his heart, doing only which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you, and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore I will bring harm upon your house of Jeroboam, and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Obviously not a very uh, pleasant prophecy, if you jump to chapter 15, 29, um, it says, um, yeah, in verse 29, it says, As soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left the house of Jeroboam. Not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shalonite. Okay, so here within two chapters, you have this this prophetic voice that is happening, and it's one. It's explaining what happened, right? It's explaining why this misfortune is going to happen against uh, the king, right? And it's because he didn't follow God. Right? He didn't do what God was asking him to do. And because of that, there was going to be consequences. And then a chapter later, you see that communicated that what God said happened. Okay, And so you have this um, example in my mind of how Old Testament prophecy, for the most part, worked. You have these situations that are historical, and then layered on top of it, you have the prophetic voice that is explaining, I don't know if it's God's perspective, but it's explaining why things happened the way they did, okay? And so you have the history, and you have the perspective that God is going to make sure to clarify that this is what happens when you follow me, and this is what happens when you disobey me. 
and he's going to say that about his people. And there's going to be instances in the Old Testament where he's going to say that about the other nations around them. Right? So he is going to be communicating over and over again that he's in control, that he is um, who he says he is, and that they're bound to these covenants. But uh, it is also the reminder of his heart and how he, uh, I think, hopes to communicate with them and hopes, I think, a lot of times to spare them. But unfortunately, it takes them a long time to listen. So there's, there's two, uh, I guess they're kind of technical terms about prophecy. You have foretelling, which is the predicting of the future. And then you have what is called forthtelling. And this is the calling the people back to what has already been spoken. Okay. And again, I'm trying to emphasize this a lot because I think it's important. Most of the time, prophets are not giving new information. They might be saying it in a new way. It might be this crazy drama that looks weird. It might be uh, aggressive language like we see here in 1 Kings. That is not a pretty picture or a pretty situation, but it's not new. If you go back to uh, Deuteronomy uh, 28 and Leviticus 26, you will see the list of blessing and curses. And God laid it out very clear. This is what happens when you follow me. And if you come against me, this is what's going to happen. You also can remember in the law, there are multiple times where the people of God are going to accept this covenant. So the people are going to say, yes, we want this. Yes, we want your provision and your protection. Yes, we say we will follow you. So they are not forced into this. They are given this opportunity and they um, accept that opportunity. So I think sometimes, again, people can feel like in the Old Testament, well, what choice did they have? Where were they going? God is going to be graciously allowing them to be part of his people, but that relationship has limits, right? Just like today, our relationship with God has limits. And so a lot of times we want all the good things that God has for us, but we don't like the limits God wants to put in our lives. But we should know and should remember that those limits are for our benefit, right? And those are hard lessons sometimes, but just like for them, they hopefully realize as they move throughout the story more and more that the limits are a, a good thing for their lives, okay? So forth telling, again, is them being called back, thinking of um, re-communicating in different ways the law that has already been spoken, okay? And according to Gordon and Fee, there's a, I just forgot the title of the book, um, Read the Bible for All It's Worth, a lot of different, and YWAM we use it a lot, and there's also different universities that use it. it he says that less than 2% of prophecies are actually messianic, so just 2% are going to be specifically talking about the coming of Jesus. There's less than 5% of prophecies that describe the church age and less than 1% of prophecies that are still unfulfilled. So a very small percentage of the prophecies in the Old Testament are things that are going to be happening in the future. Much more frequently, you have prophecies like the one we read in Kings, where you have an historical event there's going to be a prophecy given, and then there'll be a fulfillment. 
and it's kind of open and shut. This is it. This is what's happening. This is how God is working. We obviously see there are prophecies that are talking about the coming of Jesus. There's things, and especially in the New Testament, we are going to see these allusions connected to. You're going to see it in Matthew. So I'm not saying that does not exist. But we need, I think, as we look at prophecy, if we can look first at the historical context that it's a part of and its immediate situation, it is going to help us clarify a lot about what is being said. So there are going to be these pieces that talk about a future hope, but a lot of times it's going to be talking about their, their more present situation. Any questions about that? Um, some of the challenges with prophecies specifically are kind of like the Psalms, but in these poems and in these sayings, it is very hard to figure out when there's figurative language and when there's literal language. Okay, We have to go through different languages and different contexts, and so that is even harder. Right? Maybe if we all spoke Hebrew or Greek, it would be easier to know when they're using uh, imagery or metaphor, but because we're getting it in English or whatever other language, that is an even added layer of complexity. Okay, And some of them are more obvious than others, but we need to just be aware that there is lots of figurative language in the Bible. There's some people that want to kind of hold this really fundamental view of the Bible and I consider myself to be somebody who holds a very conservative view of Scripture. Um, but even in that, you have to be willing to say, I'm pretty sure that's a metaphor. You know, I don't, you know, here in Isaiah 2 and 4, they shall uh, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Is it simply that those instruments are going to change and that's all there is? No, there is a figurative meaning to that, um, changing the way. Um, changing the way the tools they need are going to be used. And if you just take everything literally, you're going to miss a lot of what's going on. But that doesn't mean that everything's literal or that everything's figurative, right? So that that's the challenge. That's the challenge of hermeneutics. Yes? And that just means it's going to be like period of peace, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Correct. Yeah, exactly. So understanding those things in both the historical and literary context are going to help us make our best guess, but, right? Uh, just remember, like I said on, I think I said this on Monday, even as we are studying and we are learning to read, we are just learning to read the Bible right now, we should hold our interpretations lightly. There's people that spend their whole lives debating these difficult passages. And anybody that's a good scholar, I feel like, uh, they are willing to say, this is my perspective. They'll write it in the books that you read and in the articles. They'll say, this is what I think. And these are the other three guys that have been studying it alongside me. And they've come to different conclusions. And this is why I like my conclusion better. But at the end of the day, you know, you can say 80% uh, or, or whatever it is. But that, that is helpful in both ways. One, it's helpful to keep us humble. 
right? We don't want to pretend like we somehow have the only answer. Now we need to be willing to listen to other perspectives and hear and try to understand, okay, well, why did you get to that conclusion? Where, where did that come from? And try to understand their train of thought. Uh, but it should also give us courage that it's okay to teach and it's okay to try and start. I have had teachings where if I look back, you know, from five years ago to today, I would have probably taught it different. I would have probably had a different conclusion. So it's okay to get up in front of somebody and say, this is as far as I've gotten up to today, right? I'm not, and we shouldn't look at teachers as this is the last word that you're going to have on this, you know, thing, especially if you hear a new perspective. If you hear something that you've never heard before, before you throw everything else out, do a little research, do a little more reading, try to figure out where they're coming from and why. Okay. But yeah, figurative language is going to be a big, big deal throughout specifically the prophetic books. Um, I don't know if you talked about this previously, but there's a lot of um, very specific literary elements that are used in the Old Testament prophetic writings. Um, one of those are going to be called oracles. And so if you think like in our Bible, most of the time we divide books up by the chapters, and sometimes your Bible will give you a chapter title. Well, in the Old Testament, you had these writers, and we talked about structure with Ezra and Nehemiah and how their structure looked different. Pro prophetic writing also has its own structure, and we're going to practice looking for some of that here in a little bit. But you have these things that are called oracles, and you have a lawsuit oracle, which basically is supposed to look like a courtroom scene where you have a judge and you have the judge pronouncing judgment over whatever is going on. You have woe oracles, which are oracles. They'll start with the word in English. It's they'll literally start with the word woe, or in Spanish they start with the word I. Uh, but they're it's just a way to identify them. And then you have uh, salvation oracles, and those are the ones again. They should be pretty self-evident, where you have a lot of judgment happening, and then you have a, a piece that is going to be talking about hope. And so there's, there's these different ways to identify them. And then you have visions, and then you have enacted symbols. Enacted symbols are when you have, you know, you got the prophet laying on the ground forever, or the prophet shaves his head, or does whatever he's going to do. Those dramas are enacted symbols, and they're meant to communicate something. And then if it's none of those other things, uh, we call those messenger speeches, and those will feel... Kind of just like a monologue where the, the prophet is going to be speaking for a while. Okay, Why is it important for, for us to recognize this? Mostly it's important for our literary context. right? We want to look at the whole message that is trying to be communicated before we um, try to take, especially with harder passages, we want to take the whole piece, try to get all the language, all the images that are being communicated and trying to figure out, okay, what's the big picture first? What are they, what are they trying to say? Are they communicating judgment? Are they community communicating encouragement? Who specifically are they talking to? 
right? We want to try to understand that whole picture. And it's not always just in chapter 14 or just in chapter 15. Sometimes it's 14 and half of 15, or sometimes it's 14, 15, and 16, or whatever the chapter breakdown is, okay? So you want to try to, as you're reading through that, you know, make notes in your Bible and say, oh, I think this passage actually starts here and ends here. You're going to have to do that also when you get to Paul's letters. He's got these long, you know, we would call them run-on sentences, and it just seems like he goes forever. There's a lot of connecting words, then and although and all this stuff that connects this thought. So you don't want to just read one chapter and be like, okay, that what's Paul saying in this chapter? You want to try to figure out what's his whole unit of thought. And within that, that's where you want to try to understand, okay, what is he saying in that unit of thought? With these prophets, where are these where are these prophecies starting and ending? Because in a prophetic book, like we're going to see, you have multiple messages being sent to different people at different times. So you can't just read it cover to cover and say, oh, this is all one message. There's a bunch of little messages probably with a, again, a theme or something that's going to connect them. Any questions about these prophetic forms or the structure of prophetic books? Okay, so some helps for interpreting prophecy. First, we want to look for the nearest fulfillment possible. So like for, I'll use the example in First Kings. We don't need to wonder, oh, what happened to the family? Or what's going to happen to them next? It tells us in the next chapter, right, the fulfillment for that prophecy. So case closed. We found it. We know that there was a prophecy and it was fulfilled. If you take away, uh, and this goes into the next one about a single fulfillment, you have to have, or kind of if you think about it as a, as a prophecy, if prophecies can have multiple fulfillments, if that prophecy in Kings can just be repeated forever, it kind of can lose its meaning. Does that make sense? Like if there's a warning, but you're never sure who are the, who's being warned and who's going to get punished, then it loses its punch, right? So it we need to try to think about, okay, what is being fulfilled in this moment? Okay, but what do you do when you have those moments in prophecy where it sounds like, okay, this is pretty sure for this time, and then you have this little sentence at the end that says, and he will reign forever, or, and this is going to happen in the last days. And you say, oh, wait a minute. So wait, what do I do with that? How does that work? Hey, those are things that we call um, spiritual fulfillments. And again, this is complicated. And it's these are these are guides. These are not hard, fast rules. So we again, as we are studying and as we're learning, the deeper down the rabbit hole you get, the more complex it gets. And so for us, the majority of the time, think try to find those single fulfillments. And then as you get into the New Testament, you want to think as the spiritual fulfillments go, that the New Testament helps interpret the Old Testament. Okay, so if Paul is going to say, 
And then in this Old Testament chapter and verse, this is, this is talking about Jesus. If you look back, it might not be saying anything about Jesus. But the, the New Testament authors have that special right. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit and they've been empowered by God to help bring clarity about who Jesus is. So they are able, they're the only ones able to go back and say, this means something different. Okay. So there's this thing called, a, um, well, we don't need to get into that, but basically Jesus changes things. Jesus changed how the people of God are going to function and how some of these um, promises are going to look after his life. As he fulfills what is going to happen, you're going to read about that in Matthew and in the end of this next week, how we carry ourselves as the people of God is going to change because of the ministry of Jesus. Okay. And so there are things that the old or the new Testament writers are going to allude to from the old Testament that feel different, but they're not different. They're he, they're just bringing a, a clear picture or a, um, an updated understanding of what we have. So it doesn't make the Old Testament untrue. It just means that when you're reading those New Testament passages, uh, you have to see it through that. You know, when you're thinking about theologically over the whole big story, the, the New Testament writers are able to bring clarity to the Old Testament um, that maybe even the Old Testament writers didn't possibly see. Does that make sense? Okay. There are times where you have conditional prophecies. You know, you'll, you'll see if this happens, if you do this, then this will happen. That's just what it says it is. It's conditional. And there's different times when God is able to, uh, the people respond and God relents. And those, those happen throughout. So those are just things to um, be aware of. And finally, you have these eschatological prophecies. There is a small percentage that are yet to be fulfilled. So there are still some things, right, that we're waiting for. Uh, hopefully you will talk about this in the weeks to come. But there is this age of tension that we live in, right, that we, we know Jesus came. We know he's God. That's where we put our faith, but we know we're not there yet, right? There's still things in the world that, that God has said that he's going to do that he has not done. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot written about what that looks like and how that unfolds, but just realize that there's a tension there. Okay. And so one of the things that is hard about these spiritual fulfillments and these eschatological fulfillments is that the perspective that we are reading them in, it's hard to understand the gap of time, okay? And a good way to think about that is looking at a picture of the mountains. When you see a picture of the mountains, right, those mountains look like they're right, right up against each other, right? So if you think about those are the messages of prophecy, they seem like they are you know, if you're looking at him, you say, okay, there's this mountain, then there's this mountain, and there's this mountain, and you don't have any concept of the space between them, right? But 
when you look at it from that other perspective, there's a big gap, right? And so you have these, and this you're going to see it all throughout Scripture. You have these post-exilic moments and prophecies that are given, and they're saying, there's going to be a king coming, and he's going to rule. And they're like, great, we can't wait to see that. Oh, pause 400 years, Jesus comes, right? And then Jesus comes, and he starts to do his Jesus stuff, and they're like, Man, this is it. This is what the prophecies have been talking about. Pause, church age, 2,000 years later, we're still waiting, okay? It doesn't mean that they're not happening or they're not going to happen. It means that there's this gap of time that until we see the whole thing come to completion, we don't know how big that gap is. So again, we are in this, this tension of waiting of saying, okay, how, how long is that and how does that work out? And this is, this is hard for us to, um, I think, uh, communicate and hard for us to deal with from a, uh, re- from a Christian standpoint because, at least for me, I want the answer. <laughs> I want to know what happens at the end and I want to know how long I have to wait. Right, But I don't know why, but there is a consistent theme in the Bible that the people of God are the people that wait. We are people that live in this tension of we know, we know who God is right? because we've seen what he's done before. So we can trust that. We can trust that he is faithful. But there's these things that are still going to happen that we're waiting for. Right? They had to wait before they got out of Egypt. They go through that. They had to wait in exile. After they return from exile, they have to wait for Jesus. And again, we are in a stage of waiting, right? We, we've seen God move. We have seen the things that he has done over and over again. So we know his character. We can trust his character. However, we still are in this tension of, okay, we're there, but not quite, right? There's still more to be done. There's still a wrestle and attention of what is uh, what is to be finished, I guess. Okay. So, as we are doing this, we want to first, again, we want to identify the unit of thought. So, is there an oracle? Is there a vision? Where is that unit of thought taking place? We want to try to understand the historical context. And then... If there are hard passages, I would say at this point in your study, just take a note. Oh man, that's really confusing. Or that language, I have no idea what they're saying, right? And maybe those are things that you save for later. Maybe those are passages that as you, uh, you know, as you get towards the, the end, whether it's a passage in the gospel or a passage in Revelation when you get there, maybe you save that for your teacher. But again, I would say... As you are studying, there's, there's a lot for us to process and deal with, even in the stuff we can understand. So the stuff that is going to be confusing or hard, it's okay to put that aside for today and just, as you, as you need to, you can get to it. Or as you are inspired to, you can get to it. That sound good? All right, so... 
I am going to give you guys a chance to practice some of this. And Haggai is a great book to practice this because it's pretty cut and dry. Um, Zechariah and Malachi, not as much. And so we'll, we'll practice with Haggai. And so I want you to read just chapter 1. And I want you to note where there is prophecy. And I called the other parts of it historical background. So what verses do you find historical background? And what verses do you find prophecy? And I'll give you a couple minutes to do that. You guys ready? Maybe? Great, we'll go with yes. Um, all right, how many different prophecies are in uh, chapter one? By just put a put a a number up. Huh? Great question. But yes, well, first we'll go with the if you think you have an answer. So. How many prophecies did you find in chapter 1? Anybody? Anybody? Did anybody find any prophecies? We'll go with zero. Huh? Counting? Did you have a number, Dave? Okay, so we got a possibility of two over here. How many do you think two? Possibly some two, two uneasy twos. Anybody else want to give a guess? None? Yeah, and so I'll help. Hopefully once we do this first one, the next chapter will be easier to identify. All right. So the way I saw the breakdown of chapter one is I do think there's two prophecies. And then right before each prophecy, you're going to get a little bit of historical background or right at the end, there's a little bit of historical background about kind of the result of what's happening. So in one one, you have, it says, in the second year of Darius king, the king in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So there's the historical background, and then you have the first prophecy. And it says, thus says the Lord. So that's one of the easy ways you can see when God is going to start speaking through the mouth of the prophet is going to say something to the effect of, thus says the Lord, or the Lord said, and he's going to give his prophecy, okay? And then you go down, that goes from 1 to 11, and then verse 12, it says, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God 
from the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and all the people feared the Lord. So you have you have the prophecy, and then you quickly have the people's response. Then in verse 13, you have this very small prophecy that's given, and it's kind of the historical background and prophecies kind of mixed together. Uh, it's going to say, the ha- Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. That's it. That's the whole thing. And then you have a little bit more historical background at the end of the chapter. You guys see that breakdown? All right, let's try chapter two. So same thing. I want you to go through and try to figure out how many prophecies there are and where there is historical background. All right, you guys ready? Think. All right, let's try again on how many prophecies did you see in this chapter? All right, we got one vote for two, two votes for two. Anybody else? Maybe a three. Anybody else? (laughs) You got four over here. Any other guesses? Somewhere, somewhere between two and four? 17. 17. Could be. All right, let's take a look. So in, chat, in verse one, we got, I think, some more, more historical background. Right? It's going to say, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came, to the, came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Okay. And then you have the next prophecy, and that's going to be from verse 2 to verse 9. Then verse 10, you have some more historical background. Then you have the fourth prophecy, uh, second one, I guess, in this chapter. And then verse 20, a little bit more historical background. And then finally, one more, uh, huh? Yep, that's right. 21 to 23 would be the last prophecy. So I see three in this one and two in the chapter before. So altogether, there are five prophetic messages here. And they are going to be, you know, when you look at all of Haggai, you have, we know the historical context, right? We know that he is going to be, if you remember back in Ezra, let's jump to Ezra really quick. Do you guys remember what chapter there uh, Haggai's mentioned in Ezra? It's probably a lifetime ago, huh? You're already like four books ahead. I think it's yep. Yeah, so Ezra chapter 5. And what are, what are they doing in Ezra and Nehemiah? What are they trying to accomplish? Yeah, rebuild the temple. What else? Rebuild the wall. And then finally, what else are they trying to do in the midst of all that? Yeah, the community or the people. Okay, so you have the city, you have the religious establishment, the temple, and you have the people. These are the things that are trying to be 
edified during this time. And so Haggai, remember if you think of it more as a layer, Haggai is going to be helping to give some perspective on maybe what the people are feeling and also what God is feeling during this time. Okay, I think it's interesting that in Haggai you see kind of the beginning and the end are more of a correction. And then these two prophecies in the middle, to me, feel more like encouragements. And again, I tried to explain this over the last couple of days, but I feel like you can see it even more in these prophetic books, the need for the people to be encouraged, right? The need for God to remind them, hey, I am with you. You're still, you're still, you're still doing okay. You know, even though you have all this opposition, keep going, keep doing what you are asked to do. I am with you. Okay. And so this is the kind of the big picture of what's happening in Haggai. And then we can go. And as we're looking at these prophecies, we can see more specifically what Haggai is saying. And this will help clarify maybe if there's some confusing piece within uh, the book.